Well, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your gift to us. We ask now, Lord, that you would grant us grace as we look into your word. Give us grace we need to understand. Give us the ears we need to hear and the will that we need to put it into action by the grace of your Spirit. We ask this in the precious name of Christ, knowing that you hear us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we come to the conclusion of this Lord's Prayer, coming to this great doxology, for yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. For thine is the kingdom. I have it memorized in the King James. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I hope that in this series of sermons in the Lord's Prayer that you've been able to slow down and to look at each petition and realize how much there is there. It's a very short prayer, isn't it? You could teach a child of school age to say it within an afternoon if you really drilled it into them. And then you could say it for the rest of your life and not really think about it. We could just just fire off the words without thinking about it. But when we slow down, we realize that, boy, Christ really did know what he was talking about. And he ends it with this great doxology. And it's important for us to understand this. Because in our day and age, it's altogether too easy when we see what's going on in the world. And frankly, it's always been this way. There's never been a golden age. There has been a golden age. It was in Eden a long, long, long time ago. Since then, the golden age has awaited a future consummation. But there has been times in history when things were better for the covenant people. And in our day and age, it's altogether too easy to think that somehow God's forgotten about his kingdom or that he's going to set his kingdom up sometime in the future. Well, in the future, the kingdom will be perfected, but it's already been established. He's building it brick by brick, soul by soul, church by church. You have to remember that this prayer is set in the present context, is it not? It was given to the disciples 2,000 years ago for their daily bread. And Christians since that time have asked God for their daily bread, to use that petition as an example, and it's closed with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now that little word for, it's very important. It's very important. You could easily translate it as because. You see, We're able to ask God for all of those petitions for only one reason. We ask those questions and those petitions in the context of his kingdom. You see, if God wasn't a king, he wouldn't have the ability or the right to bestow upon us these gifts. If he he was a king but didn't have any power, he wouldn't have the ability to give us those gifts. But because he is a king and he has that power, all the glory is to him and for him and from him. It all works together perfectly. It starts out, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It starts out with an ascription of praise and it ends with the doxology. And in between it, in between those two ascriptions of praise and glory are the petitions that we ask God for. But you see, if God isn't who he says he is, then we're asking 
for things that we will never receive. And that's the difference between covenantal religion and all the other religions of the world, no matter how elevated they might be. Think of the ancient world, or even sadly in places in the world today where people are idol worshippers. I mean, think about how silly it really is to bow down before a statue and ask that statue for stuff. Isaiah talks about that. Isaiah gives a mocking tone to the person who takes a log and starts a fire and cooks some food over that fire with the wood. But there's some wood left over. So the person is a craftsman, grabs some of that wood, uh, takes out his whittling knife and carves himself an idol from the same wood that he just cooked his food over, places that idol up on a little high spot, kneels down before that wood that was just wood and could easily have been kindling, and he prays to it, saying, You are my God, please save me. You are my God, please save me. It's, it's derisive, mocking tones from the prophet. Think about how silly that really is. You just cooked your food over half the log, and now you've whittled this into some creature-looking thing, and you're bowing down, hoping that the wood will somehow give you more stuff. And when we think of that in con- that context, we realize how silly it is to be an idol worshiper. But let's not be too hard on those who bow down before gods of stone and wood and stubble, because we have idols in our hearts as well. We bow down to things that are maybe less visible. And I bow down before financial security. I bow down before an education that we hope would give us that financial security. We can bow down to all types of things. But they're not the living God. And if we bow down to those things, they will not give us what we need. They will not give us what we need. Because only God is a king. And only God is in his kingdom. And it's important for us to realize that God really is in control of everything. That he really is sovereign. That he's in charge. Because it's easy for us to get worried. It's easy for us to get scared. We live in scary times. Human history has always been scary. But with our modern technology the stakes are raised just a little bit. I mean, after all, armies can do a lot more damage now than they could 200 years ago. They can move faster. They can get to foreign soil quicker. And once they're there, they have weapons that they can just do a lot more damage with than a tomahawk. It's scary. And those of us who live in technologically advanced societies, it's a great blessing But the blessings that we have, we become somewhat dependent upon them. Dare I say, enslaved at times. I mean, after all, if you live in a place and you don't have electricity, then you really, that's one less thing you have to worry about. You don't actually worry about the electricity going out because you don't have it. Now, bear in mind, I'm not advocating that we turn our electricity off because I like heating and air conditioning. And it's a a modern invention, and God's given us those gifts. But it's just another thing we can worry about. If you don't have a car, you don't have to worry about it starting, right? 
But if you need your car in our society and you go out in the morning and it doesn't start, that's a lousy way to start the day at 5 in the morning. It's just not very fun. God's in charge of all those things. He's given us cars. He's given us homes. That's part of our daily bread. Now we may think, wow, that's, that's going a little bit far. Well, no, not really. If you need a car to go to the job that God has given you in his power, then that car is part of the necessities of life. Because remember, that petition, that I give us this day our daily bread, is what we need to live. If you need a car, then that's part of it. If you don't need a car, then it's not part of it. You don't need it, so don't ask for it. But it's all on the basis of him being a father in heaven and that this kingdom exists in heaven and on earth. The first petition proves that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Now think of the power of that request. How is God's will done in heaven? Well, you've never been there, so you don't exactly know, but take a good guess. How do you think the angels and our forefathers in the faith affect God's will in heaven? I'll make it easy for you. They obey him. They glorify him. They don't sin. Heaven is the place where there's no sin. So when we're asking God on the basis of his kingship and his fatherhood, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking for something absolutely stupendous. We're asking that righteous living, that righteous thought, that righteous interactions with one another would occur on this sin-stained, battle-scarred planet, the same way that the angels in heaven and our brothers and sisters interact with one another in heaven. You have to realize that Christians argue with each other. And that in heaven right now, there are Christians who disagreed with each other vociferously. When we think of our tradition, I'm going to give you two names that you, maybe some of you have heard of, but they're pretty obscure. In the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the early 40s, there was a really big theological dispute over literally one or two sentences between two very brilliant minds. One of them was named Cornelius Van Til. The other name was Gordon Haddon Clark. You would not have wanted to debate either one of those guys. When they got into a room together, these are PhDs arguing over the most minute of tiny little theological problems, and they argued pretty roughly for a long time. You know what? They're both in heaven now, and they don't argue anymore. And they both now realize just how silly their particular argument was, even though it seems important, and it still is important, and it still comes up on Presbyterian ordination exams. What do you think about that dispute? If you give the wrong answer, well, you're going to get sent back to school. Depending on the presbytery, you will probably get a bad mark on that grade unless you can really back up your stuff. And you give the wrong answer to that question, You've opened up Pandora's box to three or four different exams. But they don't fight anymore. They don't speak harshly to each other anymore. They're nice to each other because they're in heaven. And when we ask 
for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's what we're asking for. We're asking that the Van Tills and the Clarks that are still living would not fight. Because you have to remember, those were two godly men. They weren't fighting over the essentials of the faith. They weren't fighting over the doctrines that we find encapsulated in the Apostles' Creed. They were arguing over something fairly minute in the large scheme of things. It's important to fellows like me, but it's not that important to most people. It's important to pastors and theologians, and it's something that takes place just in our circles, but we don't really talk about it that much because, quite frankly, it's really complicated and it's not really going to help you in your life all that much. If I explained it to you and told you what was right and wrong about each position, you'd probably think, that's not really going to help me pay my bills this month. Thank you very much. It's, by the way, it's not going to help me uh, rear my children in the faith any better. Matter of fact, you've just confused me. The point is, is that that peace that's in heaven... That joy that's in heaven, that's a, we can ask for that to actually happen on earth. Now let me ask you this. When you ask for that, well, I have to ask you two questions. Do you ask for that? I know that you might say the Lord's Prayer. You say the words, but are you really asking that God's will would be done on this earth? Do you really want to see God's will done? And then if you really do, do you ask in faith or is there a part of you that says, you know what, Lord, I know you want me to ask for this, but let's be serious between the two of us. It's not really going to happen here in western Pennsylvania, right? You're talking about someplace else, not here, certainly not in my life. I mean, after all, I can't get along with her. I can't get along with him. I know we're in the same family. I know that we're in the same church, but come on, you know our history. You see, if we don't ask for the prayer in faith, we won't, get the, we won't get the answer. We have to ask in faith. So when we look at this Lord's Prayer, it really is a call to renew our faith. To really get down to it and realize, I do believe in a God who is sovereign. I do believe in a God who is just. I do believe in a God who is all-powerful. And by the way, he doesn't want me to fight with my fellow Christians. He doesn't want that. He wants his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to manifest the power of his kingdom here on the earth. Hmm, that's, that's a tall glass of water to drink. And we have to realize that as Christians, it's not just good enough for us to just ask and then say, well, well okay, Lord, you do it. Certainly that's part of it. But as Christians, we have our part to play. We have our part to play. And the part that we have to play is, one, believing the promise. You see, if God asks us, if, no, if God commands us to ask this, then that must mean, A, he wants it to happen, and B, it can happen. What do you think gets in the way? Us. We get in the way. Our selfish desires. Just think of your own life. Some of the arguments that you've had with fellow Christians. I mean, have they, or family members who are fellow Christians, have they ever really been worth it? 
Most of them probably not. Some of them maybe, but most of them have been what? They've been what we call personality conflicts. They've been over little, small slights, which is really kind of like junior high kind of stuff, really. Because those persons we argue with, they won't be here someday. We won't be here someday. And it's really tragic when we have these disputes, when we're not acting in accordance with God's will on this earth, and God takes one of us away, and the one behind is left with the nagging feeling that they should have done something different to repair that relationship. The relationship will be repaired in heaven perfectly, but while that party left behind is on earth, they are left. Not with a nagging suspicion, but with a nagging realization that the fight wasn't over anything all that important. Certainly, if it's, if it's between two Christians, it's never, it's never proper for a repair not to happen on this earth. If we're having a dispute with a non-Christian, It's a little bit different. If we're discussing the truths of the faith with a family member who doesn't believe for years, that's a little bit different. Sometimes feelings get hurt. And hopefully they're being hurt by the message, not by the messenger. You see, the message of the cross is is offensive enough. We don't need to clutter that up with our own baggage. If you tell an unbeliever... You're in sin. If you die, there will be a reckoning. And when you die, that reckoning will not be in your favor because you will die without Christ. That's not exactly a very pleasant thing to hear. And those of us who didn't grow up in evangelical homes know what it's like to first be told as an adult, hmm, by the way, you're going to go to hell if you die. It's, it's not very pleasant. The first time I heard it was over lunch. I thought, really? Wow. I guess you're probably right. The Spirit moved on me fairly quickly, but I know people who have heard the message and thought, really? Prove it. And then you have to. You show them the litany of their life and they realize... In light of God's law, they've fallen so far short of his glory. That's different, but if two people are Christians, there's never an excuse to have their relationship unrepaired. And we have to do everything that we can in our part to repair that relationship. We can't do it for the other person, but we have to do our part. Let God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think about our daily bread. God can give us what we need because he is a king. He has the right to bestow upon us those things that we need because he is a king. And he has the power to do it. Do you realize who we are in Christ? We're dead to sin, Romans tells us. Dead to sin. We're in God's kingdom. We're under his power. 
Sin shall not have any authority over us because we are not under law but under grace. That's Romans 6 as well. You might want to go home and read Romans 6 today. They have this great and precious promises. And we act very often as if we don't have them whatsoever. And we suffer because of it. If we knew the power, really knew experientially, the power that God has, and really believed that he wanted to exhibit that power in our lives, if we would realize that truth of 2 Timothy 1, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of a sound mind. Do you realize those are things you don't have to ask for? I mean, it'd be silly if a child was given a bike on Christmas at, let's say, 6 in the morning. And then at 11, asked for, Mom, Dad, can I have a new bike for Christmas? Well, champ, you have one. Granted, it's snowing outside, but, but you have one. We can ride around in the garage. What if he asked for it again at 3? Can, can I have a new bike? You have one, remember? It'd be silly to ask for something you already have. So, if you ask God, Lord, make me dead to sin, God can't answer that prayer. He's already given it to you. If you ask God, God, remove this, remove this spirit of fear from me. How many of us have asked something like that? Remove this spirit of fear from me. Well, God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power. What kind of power is that? Political power? No. Political power is nothing compared to the spiritual dynamite God has given us. He's given us a spirit of power. Lord, make me more loving. Hmm. He's given us a spirit of love. It's already there. Lord, help me think more clearly. He's already given you the spirit of a sound mind. It's already been given. What we need to ask is, Lord, please help me to remember those three things. Please help me to remember to appropriate the gifts you've given me. In other words, like that little boy asking for the bike over and over, it's like, no, champ, just get on it and ride around on it. Ride around in the basement until snow comes out. God's given us all these gifts and we keep asking him for these things and we already have them. What we need to be asking him for is, Lord, help me to actually get on that bike and ride today. And too many of us are asking him for that new shiny bike when it's sitting in the garage waiting for us to get on and ride. Where are you in your spiritual life? Are you on that bike riding? Or are you kind of waiting for him to give you something that he's already giving you? Now, when we think about that little boy, it's kind of comical. It's funny, but we're like that. We're like that. He's given us all these things, great and precious promises. And it's on the basis of those things that we lay aside the weight of this world. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Because we have those great and precious promises, we have to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us and run run the race with perseverance that he set before us. He's a king. For thine is the kingdom. 
Nobody else has the kingdom. Not the president. Not the senate. Not the congress. Not the judges. Not any army in this world has the kingdom. They are under God's control. Please remember, chapters back in the book of Job, Satan comes with the angels of God. Because Satan's an angel. He's a fallen angel. He comes before God. They have to present themselves before God. And he asks permission. Actually, he doesn't ask permission. God points out Job to him. Satan can do nothing that God doesn't allow him to. So if that's the case, then what about these puny human beings who think they have all of this power? Listen, I'm here to uh, assuage your fears. They're nothing. God is the king. God is the king. No matter who is in charge in any one nation state, it doesn't matter because there is only one king. And this is a good king. A loving king. He does not abuse his power the way human rulers do. Think about Haiti. That's one of the worst places in the world you can live. Certainly, probably the worst place in our hemisphere you can live. And for a long time, it was ruled, for lack of a better term, by the Duvalier family. And they were, they were allies of ours because they hated the communists, and that's good. But they were not nice people. You might recall in the mid-80s when they got run out. Baby Doc, he was the, the son of the original dictator of Haiti. You remember his wife, Michelle Duvalier? They ran them out of town because, well, while people were there living on 50 cents a day, she was slowly, allegedly, because it's never been proven, allegedly robbing the National Treasury of something like $90 million. She allegedly, well, no, this has been proven, had an air-conditioned room, a gigantic room that was air-conditioned, really, you know, like ice. Well, okay, Haiti's hot, but do you know why it was air-conditioned? so that she could have her rich lady friends over so they could wear their fur coats. Listen, I've never been to Haiti, but I know you don't need a fur coat there. You do not need a fur coat in Haiti. But if you own a fur coat, you want to show it off, right? So what they would do is they would gather and they would have these little tea parties, for lack of a better term, in an air-conditioned, frozen type of room to parade all these fur coats they had. Now, there's something fundamentally sick about that. And then the thing that pushed them over was the publicity that she received of a shopping trip. She went on to Paris, where allegedly, again, I'm using that word, allegedly she was given a million dollars. I can't imagine what it's like to go shopping with a million dollars. And apparently all she was doing was buying clothes and cars, not even houses. That wasn't enough. She called up and asked for another check. And she got it. When word got back and the photos were shown of what she was buying in Paris, the people, you might recall, they just went nuts. And then she had the audacity, months later, to go on TV. It was either with Barbara Walters or 60 Minutes, one of those people. And she said these chilling words, I don't think the money was spent very badly. And I remember thinking, what color is the sky in your world? 
oh, it's okay to have nice things, but $2 million on shopping trips when your people are literally starving to death, that's what a human kingdom looks like. Because human beings get hold of power and they take. They get hold of more power and they take some more. God is not like that. In this prayer, we see God as a king who is giving and giving and giving so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for those who would ask for these things. Brothers and sisters, we serve a wonderful, beautiful, loving, powerful, sovereign God who loves you so much that he executed his son for you. And if that's the case, do you think he's going to withhold the things that you need? Maybe not the things you want, but the things that you need, he will grant them to us. He is in control. He only asks that we trust him. He only asks that we believe. So I call upon you, believe on the Lord thy God, and he will provide for you everything that you need. Shall we pray? O Lord, we ask for the faith that we need to believe that you are such a gracious and good king and that we will learn to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.